touch that. Uh, can I move it? I don't want to break anything. Right, it's good to be with you. I don't want to be over-microphoned. Oh, what a good man. Thank you. Um, it is good to be with you on this day. Let me, first of all, uh, give apologies to my wife, Marion. We're trying to make sensible decisions. I mean, she's basically got a, an ordinary cold, I can assure you, which she's had for about 10 days. And uh, Marion's prone to it becoming a bit of a cough at the end of her cold. So uh, two things. It, it might, you know, see a coughing. But certainly singing and talking aggravate it. So um, she probably wouldn't have gone uh, if we were just at Hope Church. So apologies from Marion. Um, I'm, I'm here at this unusual time, uh, just before I get into what I want to talk about. It's a bit of relevant to it, really, because I'm preparing this week and thinking and praying and watching the news like we all are. And uh, I thought, oh, Lord, should I speak something relevant? And uh, I felt God nudge me back to what I'm going to speak about. I really did. I mean, there was particularly Friday, I think, uh, a time when I thought, well, do I um, change what I'm going to say? And I felt God said, no, no, this is, you're speaking, I'm going to be speaking in a moment about something that's absolutely classic about who we are in Christ, about being, what, we, what it is. So, and I think they're two very important and exciting things that I want you to get hold of. And I pray for God, and I will pray in a moment before I start, for God to, give, to help us to come to faith in these things and live by them. But uh, undoubtedly, we are living in extraordinary times, and it would be foolish of me not to make some comment on that. Um, I mean, we seem to have lived in a... I was talking to Marion the other day. I said it's almost like for about years now, we, 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 since Brexit, to be honest, we've been watching the news and living in a state of semi-panic as a nation. You know, oh, right, we're going to have a no-deal Brexit. Let's all stock up. We're going to... Now it's the coronavirus. Let's all stock up. And the, the stock markets are doing this and the pound's doing that. You think, goodness me, I'm getting a bit weary with this. But obviously it tests us and it makes us dig into who we are if we're in Christ and our faith in him. Don't put your hope in uncertain wealth, but in God who gives you richly all things to enjoy. I mean, some of these scriptures that just plain Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, all of that is so important to us and we need to dig into it and, and rest in it. And there are opportunities to help. And just this morning's well, really overnight news uh, I think it was this morning that the health minister was saying that looks likely that the next sort of significant step will be, uh, you know, quite a significant step, I think, will be advising those over 70 and with underlying health problems to self-isolate and to stay indoors. And it could go on for weeks and weeks. Um, and you think, well, here's an opportunity to work out how we can ourselves look after each other, because that will cover many of us in our own communities, but also those neighbours, because a lot of people in that age group would be quite lonely, I would think. Um, and even just today, I, I was seeing what I thought was a good thought, a good idea. On, on Twitter, someone had, had, has already thought of doing little cards, like postcard size, with my name and address and my mobile number and, you know, do you want anything? Do you need any shopping? Do you need anything? Blah, blah, blah. Just put it through the door of an elderly or lonely neighbour who you know is, lives on their own and is well over 70 or over 70. It doesn't matter how well over they are. Because I think it's going to come through as quite a strong message from the government over this next week. Um, and so it'll be a lot of nervousness and fear. And also, to be honest, 
Knowing, having one elderly parent left, Marion's dad, who's 89, to be honest, these are not the people who've been hoarding. <laughs> They're not the people that can come away with a hundred. Someone, Annie Chick, our, our eldest wife, our lead eldest wife, was behind someone in all, uh, was it uh, Asda or something, and they bought a whole, a whole trolley full of toilet rolls, like about, you know, a whole trolley full. And you think, really? I mean, it's not D&V we're going to suffer from, is it? What? <laughs> is this and and you know but actually bless them people of 89 will not be shopping like that and and they go regularly to the you know once a week if they go to the the local morrisons or something and they're just bamboozled they can't buy the things they want so we it's an opportunity for us serious opportunity i think to be ready to help and to show the love of jesus but i'm sure there'll be many other things that your dear leaders here will will want to shepherd you through who knows as uh, i think it was sorry is it ruth Pam, sorry, Pam. Who knows, as Pam said, whether, you know, you're going to plan to meet, but whether you'll meet in a few weeks' time, I don't know. I was due to be in Madrid next week to set in three elders, the three, first three elders in our church plant in Madrid, which is a great little church, 80 people, called Cristo Salvador. That's where Marion and I were due to be next Sunday. And that's cancelled. We're not going to Madrid now. Um, and only in the last couple of days, of course, uh, very clearly locked down. The place is locked down and the flights are sort of cancelled. So we're living with these things and we've got to show grace in the midst of them, haven't we? And show the love of God to others around us. Now, let's enjoy the Word of God. I want to, this morning, talk to you from Romans 8. And I'll be looking in a moment, reading the first four verses. But let me just briefly say about Romans 8. Romans 8, I think, is a, a, a wonderful chapter in the, in the New Testament. It's sort of the Everest of the Himalayan range, which is Romans. Romans is a brilliant book. And within that wonderful range of magnificent chapters, there is Romans 8, which does, I think, stand above the others even. It is telling us the radical nature of the gospel, what a Christian should know, what a Christian should believe, and therefore how we should live. I believe Romans 8 is the normal Christian life. There are good books, some by that title, which one by Watchman Nee, which wonderfully unpacks Romans 6. It had huge impact in my life when I read it as a young man, and I highly commend it. Some Christians, almost traditionally have rather focused on Romans 7. And if you don't know Romans too well, don't worry. But I know some of you do. And Romans 7 has that bit about the good I could do, I can't do, and I'm in a dilemma here. And they almost talk as though Romans 7 is the normal Christian life. But I would argue, and I'm supported by a, a very good uh, Bible teacher, long gone to be with Jesus, John Stott, who says this as well. John Stott, I would argue that the normal Christian life is really Romans 8. That's where we're meant to be. That's where we're meant to live. And Romans 8, if I have time, and I'm sure I will if I'm a bit careful, uh, Romans 8 has quite a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you're into statistics, the first 27 verses of Romans 8 mention the Holy Spirit 19 times. Capital S will tell you it's the Holy Spirit in our English translations. It's God's Spirit. Whereas actually Romans 7 only mentions the Holy Spirit once. And Romans 7 is really about dealing with the law. It's a sort of digression. And it, it, it's really saying the law, and this is key, cannot save us. And actually, it cannot sanctify us. So it's part of an argument working through 
to Romans 8, which is saying the answer is what God has done in Jesus and the outworking of that in our lives through the Spirit is what brings the righteousness that the law couldn't make us, couldn't give us or bring us into. And the therefore that starts verse 1 of Romans 8 is not really only about 7. It's about the whole run of argument that's gone through the chapters prior to that, possibly five at least onwards through seven. And it's like, in the light of all this and all I've said about what Jesus has done, the magnificent stuff, if you know it in chapters four, five, six, but even the the fact the law's limitations, which I've laid out in seven, Paul then says, therefore, you know, on the basis of all that, This is true. So let's read it. Romans 8, the first four verses. That's all we read. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, Lord, I just pray that as we spend half an hour looking at these truths, that you will cause faith to come in each one of our hearts. Lord, I pray for myself. I thank you that your word brings light into our hearts, but Lord, faith comes through hearing your word. And I pray, Lord, for faith to come in hearts right across this room this morning. Lord, if we've never known you as our Savior, may faith come for salvation. But Lord, for those of us who are your followers, whether it's been for 60 years or six days, I pray faith will come as we read these and unpack these wonderful verses. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. Well, I say I'm not going to unpack them all. I'm really going to focus on two verses. I'm going to focus on verse 1 and verse 4. And we're going to just have two main points. We're first of all going to look at no condemnation, and then we're going to look at living in the Spirit. And they are linked together uh, because they're really dealing with two aspects They're dealing with position and practice. And you need to understand both of them. You need to be in faith and practical application of what you believe in both cases. So let's start with no condemnation. Thank you. And let's just put up again verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, you've put the whole verse up. And then we go back to verse 1 when you're ready. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is one of the great statements of the Bible. It is a magnificent, uncompromising, categorical, clear statement. And it is so important for the faith and well-being, security, assurance and fruitfulness of the Christian, that you understand it and believe it. It is a statement to be believed. It is a statement to be stood on, as it were, metaphorically. You stand in this and you move out from it and you live by it. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. A Christian is a person who has been taken entirely outside 
of the realm of condemnation. Possible, conceivable condemnation. Now, it doesn't say there is nothing in them that deserves condemnation. Because there was a lot in all of us that deserved condemnation. And we know it. We know we weren't perfect by a long way. It doesn't say that they will never feel condemnation. Because at times we all feel condemned. And our enemy, the devil, who is the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of Christians, loves to make sure those times of feeling condemned are frequent and prolonged. But it does say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is truth concerning the Christian. And it's not primarily about our experience. It is first and foremost about our position. And that is where we need to get clear because we move out from that. So faith leads and feelings follow. That's how it works. That's how life in Christ works. That's the reality of it. Being in Christ Jesus, you need never again come under condemnation. If you are a Christian, a real Christian, you have put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. You've asked him to forgive you. You've put, you said, Jesus is my Lord and my Saviour. It's not because you've been, but baptism will have illustrated that. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a sign of what you've done, that you've put your faith in Jesus. You've turned from your old life. You've died, as it were, to that. Metaphorically, that's what baptism's saying. You've come alive to follow Jesus. He is your Lord and Savior. That means that condemnation has passed for you. Your sins and mine, and listen carefully, and I'll explain this in a moment. Your sins and mine past, present, and future have been dealt with once and for all. Condemnation is a legal term. It's saying God has removed, through Jesus, condemnation. It will not stand against you. Now, you're going to need me to give a little more explanation because already one or two minds will be worrying and saying, "What? I heard the word future sit. What's he saying? Well, I'll try and explain what I'm saying in a minute. But let's get it step at a time. There's another legal term used in Romans, justified. If you put faith in Jesus, you are justified. Justified means declared innocent. Just as if I'd never sinned. And when you become a Christian and are in Christ, you are justified. You are declared innocent before the bar of heaven. You are not condemned. Your condemnation is removed. This is a word about God's holy justice and his attitude towards those of us who are sinners. And you are no longer under any form of condemnation when you put faith in Jesus. It does mean our present sins as well as our past sins. Now, some of us struggle to even believe our past sins are forgiven and covered. But I'm going to push it further. It means our present and our future sins will not lead us into a place of condemnation. It says, it's some, it says something similar in the end of Romans 8. Romans 8.39 says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So when you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation and there is no separation. Nothing can separate us from God. 
if we're in Christ Jesus, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the obvious question is, isn't this a bit dangerous? Isn't this reckless to talk like this? Don't we need a fair bit more fear than you're giving us, John, so that we live wisely? Now, to be honest with you, that is not a new question. If you preach the true gospel properly, that is a question that should arise in people's minds. It should be, it can't be like that, it can't be that good. What does that mean? Are you saying it doesn't matter how I live, it it, it will be fine? And if you think, well, you've just thought of that, that's been in people's minds for 2,000 years. And in Romans 6, and you can look if you want to to check me out, Romans 6 verse 1 indicates that people were responding something like that even when Paul proclaimed it himself. I'll just Read it myself. So Paul, who loves to use sort of rhetorical questions and sort of picks up what, what, what's out there, says, Watch, when he's preaching the gospel that I'm talking about, Romans 5 and about, you know, justified through the blood of Jesus, all the things we're touching on, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, and he goes on and talks about it. And I'm going to go on and talk about it. But basically, people are saying, well, if you're saying that, It doesn't make any difference. We go on sinning. Logically, that's true. We'll unpack it carefully. But actually, you need to see that the gospel does present a case, not with small print that contradicts it, but right up front, which allows you to logically make that reaction in your brain. It's not that it's you wrong. You're wrong. That is true. It's true. But we need to understand what is it to be a Christian? What does it mean to be in Christ? Not to add, and I want to keep emphasizing this, not to add small print. Ah, I see, it doesn't work. It does work. If you're in Christ, you are not condemned. Your past sins are dealt with, your present sins are dealt with, and your future sins are dealt with. Jesus will never die again. His blood will never be shed again. He has died once and for all when he died. We do not have to keep bringing his blood like some animal sacrifice of old. It is a totally different, much better covenant. Read the book of Hebrews to get a deep unpacking of that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's talk about that phrase, in Christ Jesus. What is it to be a Christian? Is a Christian someone who's decided to follow Jesus? Well, that's sort of part of it, I suppose. It's not a wrong thing to say. Is it just someone who's, who's prayed in a meeting or somewhere else and asked God to forgive them their sins? Well, that, that's part of it. Someone who's joined a church? Well, if you're a, a real Christian, you'll probably join a group of believers somewhere. So there's some truth in all of that. But the definition of a Christian that is most um, prevalent in the New Testament, and the the one that certainly Paul loves to emphasize is this phrase, that a Christian is someone who is in Christ Jesus. Now, that's really the biblical way of describing it. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, when you come to know him as your Lord and Savior, God puts you in Christ, in him. So, I better be careful. I'll put it back. It's a fire alarm thing, which we hope we don't need it. I put it in the Bible, and everything that happens to that Bible happens to that now will happen to that little piece of paper, the fire alarm warning. I could put that in a parcel and send it to China, 
And that will go to China. Probably not the best place to send it at the moment. I can leave it on my shelf for 25 years and never open it. And when I open it, that'll be in there. Indeed, you often find a book with something in it that's been there for that long. In that Bible, this will go wherever the Bible goes. You are in Christ Jesus. You are put in Christ Jesus. How does that work? I can't fully tell you, but I tell you God did it. And how do I know that? It's in the very verses we read. In, in verse 3, was it, or 4, it said, For what the law couldn't do, God did by sending his son. This is all about something God did. It's not about what you did, it's what God did. And in Christ Jesus, everything that happened to him happened to you. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. You are in Christ. You are a joint heir with Christ. Everything that is his is now yours. And he took on himself what was yours. He bore your sins in his body on the tree. This is something that's risen above mere time. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You are in Christ. You have eternal life in Christ. And you will stay in Christ. God did it. Let's, this isn't part of the notes. It's not going to be on the screen. Don't worry. If you look at just um, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, probably well known to some of you, maybe not to others. This is another way Paul describes it. It's God again who does it. God, God, not, look who did it. God made him, that's Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, there it is again, in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. (gasps) That's amazing. Just flip through it. Who did it? God did it. God did it. It's what's in Romans 8. God made him to be sin for you, so that in him you can have his righteousness. That is how the gospel works. Fundamentally and truly, God does it. If I am in Christ, what is his becomes mine now and forever. I am joined in him. I am united with him. God did it and God will not undo it. Amen? Amen. You hear me. Think a little bit. Let's even give ourselves a bit of space to think with some human logic about this. Because I think Christians... Can be there's controversy around what I'm saying, but Christians can not think it through. If God puts me in Christ, I am in Christ. I cannot, I believe, be in Christ one moment when I'm behaving well, and then out of Christ another moment when I do something wrong. Let me ask you a question: How well do I have to behave to stay in Christ? Perfectly? Do you do that? I don't. What does it, what triggers me being put out of Christ? Adultery, oh yeah, murder. Well, what about the things the Bible talks about? Envy, backbiting, lust, inner lust that isn't even worked out in, in activity. How, where, where's the line? When does God take you out of Christ? And when does he put you back in on? When you go through confession, when you have the last rites, when somebody does something externally to you, at what point you put back in again? Or if, if you get one shot and that's it, you've blown it, told a lie, you're out again. Come on. That's not how the Christian message works. It's the truth, I'm going to say, not the message. It's, this is, that's not how the truth works. You do not cease to be a Christian when you sin. You do not come under condemnation when you sin. You are not cast out of Christ when you sin. 
Listen carefully. You, as a Christian, when you sin, you have sinned against love, not against law. It is different. You have become a child of God. You are born of the Spirit. You are in relationship with God, who is your Abba Father. When an unbeliever sins, it's like someone sinning against the law of the land, breaking a law of the land. When a Christian sins, it's like a son or daughter displeasing, disobeying, and upsetting and offending a loving, good parent. They are different things. One breaks a law, the other wounds the heart of a loving father and spoils the enjoyment of the relationship. And I could add a little this detail, I think the, uh, the, the, the child model has a complication, which is not great for us, is that we can open a door for the enemy to make life even worse for us. That's why Paul writes about making sure you don't live with anger and bitterness. Don't give any place to the devil. He doesn't say, don't do it because you might. You know, don't. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He does not say, because if you go to bed angry, you're out of Christ and you'll go to hell. He doesn't say that. He says, because you're not to give place to the devil, who exploits that. So this is a totally different dynamic. We are in Christ, you are joint heirs with Christ, God did it, God's not going to undo it. I am secure and accepted in the beloved one, Ephesians 1. God made him to be sin for me, so that I can be given, imputed, the righteousness of Christ. And it's imparted, but that comes in a moment. But imputing to me, that is accounting to me, the righteousness of Christ. For a Christian, sin is a matter of breaking and offending and hurting a a loving father. And spoiling the relationship and getting into a position of vulnerability from the tempter. Actually, in some ways, if you are truly saved and you love Jesus, and you're in a good relationship with Jesus, sin, you are much more sensitive to it, and actually it's much more of a problem in some ways. You could say, how's that? Well, just use the analogy. Think of offending someone you love. It may not be a parent. We haven't all had the most easy parenting. Just anyone you love. So it could be a partner, it could be just a decent close friend or another sort of relative. Let's think realistically. I'm Ideally, it's a loving parent. Ideally, it's a loving parent. But just think of offending someone you love. And then think of breaking the speed limit or being slightly generous with your tax returns, just fading edge. In a way, I'm not advocating breaking the speed limit and I'm not advocating slight generous interpretation of the tax thing. But the way you will feel about the former offending someone you love and hurting them is very different to the slight guilt you might feel at going too fast, or perhaps I should have declared that on my tax form. Do, do you see what I mean? There is a total difference with offending love and offending law. It's not even in the same ball game. We are now in a relationship of love with our Father. If we understand that, if we walk with Christ, we want to please him for heaven's sake. We don't even want to displease him. We, want to, we don't want a cloud between us. We, we say, oh, Father, I'm sorry. Confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. The forgiveness is there, the blood of Christ is working, you're under the blood. 
It's not about going to hell. It's about enjoying the relationship. It's about knowing him as your father. It's about hearing his voice. It's about not letting Satan exploit your, 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 your stupidity. Those are the things we need to be concerned about, and they're valid concerns, and, that, and there needs to be shame if we sin. They're, so we're not talking about like, oh, right, you know, that means I can blasely sin. No, you haven't understood the gospel if you think that. You haven't understood the God. You don't understand the love of God and you don't understand your love for Jesus. If you think, now I'm a Christian, that means I can live hell for leather and it doesn't matter, I challenge you, I don't think you are a Christian. And I say that in love. Please work out whether you truly have understood the gospel. Because you won't be perfect, but you won't feel like that about sin if you've understood it. You won't think, great. I've got this this paper's very useful to me. Great. I've got a ticket, admit one to heaven. It's in my back pocket now. I'll go out and sleep around, get drunk, do what I like, because I'll go, oh, hello, Peter. I got one, admit one. Doesn't work like that. Does not work like that. This is a relationship with the living God. You are born again from above. It's, it's a significant change. The Holy Spirit comes into you. He is now in you. We'll quickly get onto that in a moment, he says. And you are now to live in the spirit and 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 it's out of relationship abba father you're talking to him he's with you he walks with you talks to you you're at your happiest and best when you are obeying him and enjoying life with him and talking about it and trying to hear what he's saying and enjoying his word and if you things cloud that you will feel uneasy and ultimately unhappy until you put it right because it's a relationship of love and the Spirit will be tugging you. The Spirit will be making you pull back into the arms of the Father. The, the Holy Spirit will cause you to say, teach you to say no to ungodliness. That's what the grace of God will teach you to do. It will renew your mind. And you'll be walking in the Spirit and fruit of the Spirit will begin to appear. Let's go. We're already on point two. Let's go there quickly. Hallelujah. Living in the Spirit. Let's talk about that, and let's look again at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, as I've said, is, is full of references to the Holy Spirit. The contrast in mind here is the contrast between the weakness of a law-based life and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is a life in the Spirit, a life orientated, directed, sustained, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. So Christians are not to live according to the flesh, but to live according to the Spirit. Now, this is again needing a little bit of explanation. So we want to take, there's two words that come out a lot here in Romans 8, the word flesh and the word spirit. We haven't read it, but that will go on being a theme right down to verse 8 and beyond. So the word flesh and spirit. So let's explain them. The word flesh uh, is a translation of a Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X. And although uh, it can be slightly vague, actually, in what it's used for in the original language, it can sometimes be used for just flesh, just physical flesh, like meat, if you like, flesh, our flesh. But it generally means... Our humanness. Now, this is a fun. You will find our translators do slightly struggle to translate it. You'll, some translations will talk about sinful nature, some will talk about uh, other things, but actually, it's best, I think the best translations just put the word flesh, 
which is the accurate translation, and then let you study and look to work out what exactly is that. Because it actually means our humanness. These are quotations from various commentaries I read, so they're phrases of way men, various well-known men who have more brains and knowledge than I have, our fallen egocentric human nature, the sin-dominated self, flesh refers to a person apart from or outside the influence and work of the Holy Spirit. Those are just quotes. So it's trying to say this is just our humanness. With all its frailties and vulnerabilities, it's just living the human way instead of the spirit way. It's living out of our egocentric human nature. Remember that phrase because it's important to remember. But we've been saved out of that. We've been saved out of the realm of the flesh where that's all we've got to offer. Before we were saved, there's no other way of doing anything. Because we haven't got the Holy Spirit. So even our good deeds and our religious deeds are flesh. They're our efforts. They're egocentric efforts of human beings to try and get right with God. And obviously the flesh can produce some very extreme and unpleasant things as well. Now, we've come into the realm of the Spirit. That's a realm where we're born again from above, have the Holy Spirit in us, and He begins to be the one who leads us, and he will change us and renew us and renew our minds and fill us. And as we understand that we now live in the realm of the Spirit, we need to live according to the Spirit. And that's the key point here. For the Christian, everything has changed. You've been transferred from one kingdom, the dominion of darkness, where it's the world and the flesh and the devil, and you have been transferred to the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, where God is your Father in heaven, Jesus is your Lord and King. You are still in the world at the moment, but you're not of the world, and you don't belong to the devil any longer because all the legitimate hold he might have had through your sin rebellion against God has been removed, the legitimate hold. So don't give him hold her back, is the argument of the New Testament. But you do still have him sniffing around. He goes around like a roaring lion. He's looking for someone to devour. You are still active. He's active in, around you, and the, the pull of the world is around you. But you've been transferred into the kingdom of God. And you now live on a different basis, in a different way. And a key way is you live by the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit, and you do not fulfill, therefore, the lusts of the flesh as you do that. So for the Christian, everything has changed. We're now free. We're free to say yes to God and no to sin. That's the argument that comes through in Romans 6. Now, let's just for a moment, because this is ever so important. What I'm, I hope was all, all very important, but for understanding. Living in the flesh... You see, we, let, let me say another way. We have a little bit of a caricature, general view, I think, in culture, that if you talk about sins of the flesh, that means like gross sins, like excessive, you know, lustful sins and stuff like that. Well, that's a sort of aberration. That's not a really correct understanding of what the flesh is. It's the egocentric human nature. So Living according to the flesh doesn't necessarily mean living with gross, flagrant sins. It is the state where we're living just out of our human effort and our humanness, not out of the Spirit. Now, let me give you a couple of scriptures 
which will illustrate the problem for Christians if they don't understand that we need to live in the Spirit. So Galatians 3, verse 3. Could you pop that one up for me? Paul's writing to the Galatians and he says, Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, capital S you'll notice, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Now he's writing to Christians and he's saying, these Christians, let's get the context in case you don't know it, these Christians are not particularly living gross sins of the flesh, like extreme sexual sins or something like that. These are not what they're doing. Actually, they are trying to improve their Christian life by laws and rules and keeping very strict religious observance. That is what they're trying to do in order to finish or perfect their Christian life. In other words, they got saved along the lines I've been describing for the last 25 minutes, and now they're trying to think, I'll be a better Christian, a more effective Christian, if I live by my own egocentric human effort, trying to obey the rules as best I can. And Paul's saying, you're foolish, you're stupid, honestly. You will never finish or perfect or be a better Christian by means of law and flesh. That's not how it worked. It didn't save you and it won't sanctify you. It's very important to understand. You started in the Spirit, you will have to continue in the Spirit. And the flesh here really means, as I've already been saying, the old sort of way of thinking, which is pre-faith in Jesus, pre-Holy Spirit. That my It's all about my effort. It's all about what I can do. It's all about how well I can observe religious practices and laws. It's all about trying to please God and improve myself by my own efforts alone and by being very precise and accurate and thorough in fulfilling a whole set, in this case probably largely Jewish, rules and laws. And Paul's saying it didn't start that way and it doesn't finish that way. Do you get it? It's very important to get it. Because we all do it. We all can easily flip back into living our Christian life by the flesh. And we're not here talking about the grossness. We're talking about human, egocentric, ultimately can feed pride because that's one of its dangers. To live according to the flesh is to base your Christian life and your attempts to improve it on your own efforts. Egocentric, self-conscious efforts. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? Will this make God accept me more? Is this how he wants me to be in terms of should I do all of this? It's just a wrong way of thinking. It leads to fear. It leads to pride. It leads to hypocrisy. And ultimately, it leads to condemnation. Not real condemnation, but self-condemnation. Because you fail. Because your flesh isn't. In your flesh, that dwells no good thing. And you might as well wake up. You're useless in yourself. And so am I. The reason the law is weak and useless, and that phrase is a phrase that Hebrews uses about the law, and the law being referred to is the Ten Commandments. It's God's law. How dare he say that God's law is weak and useless? Well, of course there's nothing wrong with the law. You and I are weak and useless. That's why the the law is weak and useless to get you saved or sanctified. And I deliberately add the second. That's the thrust of the argument In Romans 7, we're now in the answer in Romans 8. The answer is, you are born again from above. God does it, puts you in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes into you, and you now need to live in the Spirit. 
You need to walk in the Spirit. You need to live in the Spirit. You need to follow through. And in fact, the answer is you're no longer self-centered, egocentric, human effort. You now need to be Christ-centric, Father-focused, Spirit-filled. If you don't get anything else, get out your head. <laughs> Bless you. You now live Christ-centric, centered on Jesus Christ. You live Father-focused, your relationship with your Father, and you are Spirit-filled. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Christians can make that mistake, the Galatians, and quickly they can make the mistake the Corinthians made. Let's look up at this. This is my last bit, so bear with me. I think we'll be okay. It's only a couple of minutes, but it's important. This is the Corinthians. It's a slightly different problem, you'll see. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Even now you're not ready for it, for you're still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? Now their problem wasn't that, like the Galatians were highly religious, trying to follow all these rules. Their problem was they'd forgotten they belonged to Jesus, and they, they were just living out of their humanness. So when someone offended them, they were offended. They didn't do what Jesus told them. They didn't do. The Holy Spirit would have taught them to be full of love, joy, peace, right? You know, the things that fruit of the Spirit. Instead of that, they lived out of their humanness. Well, you know, you've got to fight for your own corner. Well, if, if, you know, if it feels good, do it, or whatever. They've got all sorts of phrases. And you read the Corinthians, they're just... And the challenge is, you're just behaving like anybody else. Mere humans is a phrase, I think, in some of the older translations, which I like. Paul says, you're just behaving like mere human beings. When you stop and think, that's great. You know, you're not mere human beings. You're not mere human beings. You're not just flesh and blood. You're spirit. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. You don't behave like that, fighting each other and arguing, and just as though like any bunch of unsaved people would. You're saved, but you're not walking in the Spirit. And that will lead to disaster, and it did for some of them. Either is wrong. The Galatians or the Corinthians are both wrong, because the answer is to walk in the Spirit and live by the Spirit. We are born of the Spirit. If you fall into the Galatians trap or the Corinthian trap, you will ultimately be a very unhappy and unfruitful Christian. You will ultimately lose the plot and become miserable and isolated from God until you put it right. It will feel futile because neither works. What works is the Spirit. There's a bit in Philippians, which has just crossed my mind. Again, it's not on the thing. But in Philippians, right into the Philippians, Paul summarizes beautifully what, what true, the true people of God are. I won't read it because I'll have to explain circumcision if I do. And I've already said it. I shouldn't have said it. Because it's a reference to the Old Testament, really. But he's talking about the true people of God. And in Philippians 3, verse 3, he summarizes it beautifully. We are those who serve God by his Spirit, boast in Jesus Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. That is real Christianity. You serve God by the Spirit. You boast in Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me. I'm nothing. I'm, my flesh is no good thing. But Jesus has saved me. I'm in him and I'm righteous in him. I've been made righteous. He, what he has is mine. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I boast in Jesus. Don't boast anything I do. And he says, 
put no confidence in the flesh. I've got no confidence even now after being a Christian 60 years. If it's down to me, I'd be any good at all. In fact, I know I make mistakes. I know if I, if I get into the just relying on my own fleshly ways, I'll either mess up one way or the other. I've got to stay filled with the Spirit. I've got to stay walking in the Spirit. I've got to stay communing with my Father in heaven and letting the Holy Spirit lead me into that Abba Father relationship. That is the only way that I will be who God has made me to be a fruitful and joyful Christian, enjoying my life even in the midst of all the trials and troubles which are still there, knowing this isn't really my home, I'm anticipating being with him. And I have got the devil and the world around me and my flesh can be affected by them, but I am no mere human any longer. (laughs) And nor are you if you're in Christ. Can we have the band up? We're going to, I think we've got about 15 minutes, we, we, maybe 20. I'm sure we can go a few moments extra. We're going to worship out of that. And uh, our, our Christine will lead us in worship. But, but before we do, let's just stand together as they get, their, uh, get the music started and just instruments ready and play, start playing. And I feel we just, I want to say thank you. And I think if you've understood what I've talked about, you might start by just thanking Jesus for this incredible salvation. It's called in the Bible a great salvation, and it is a great salvation. And I just want you to thank him for it. And as you do, I'm going to just raise one or two things. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but I'll happily pray for you from here. Because I did say at the beginning that all this can be true, and you can still feel condemned. And if you, if you are someone who said, look, actually, John, I struggle with this. I don't feel... I feel condemned and I feel struggle to accept as a believer what you said. Then I just ask you to put your hand up and I just pray for God to continue. He will open your eyes and I just pray for you. In fact, I might pray any one way because you might not even have the courage to put your hand up. It's not about that, but you can do it almost quietly because God will see it. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who does not even at this stage yet sense the truth of that for them. Lord, I pray that you will open their eyes to see this wonderful, great salvation and to know from now a new confidence that there is no condemnation for them because they're in Christ Jesus. They'll be able to move and live out of a basis of relationship with a good, loving Father, not a condemning judge. I ask you to give that revelation, Lord, where it's needed. And it may be that one or two here aren't yet Christians. I, w- I, w- I wouldn't do that the same way as that last prayer. I'd say to you, please just ask God to help you to see, to see the truth of the gospel this morning. Maybe you already do, then ask him to accept you, come into your life. But I would, ask, I would genuinely ask you to talk to someone afterwards, because that sort of seals it. So if you pray and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life this morning, I want to have what this guy's talking about. I want to know this relationship with you. Please forgive me. Please take away my sin. Please make me your child. Pray those sort of things. And then ask someone just for a bit of help and strength. I won't jump all over you. They'll give you a bit of good advice. But someone in the leadership or in the church who you know is in the church, just say, I did pray that prayer this morning. And and I would encourage them just to pray again with you or... Maybe take you to one of the leaders for a 
maybe a little booklet or something. It's nothing heavy, but just it seals it. Lord, keep speaking to your people. Keep speaking, Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to be filled with the Spirit. Every one of us, just open your heart just before we worship, and I'll let Christine lead us in a song. Just say, Lord, I, I want to have more of you. Just tell him, Lord, I do love you. Tell him you love him. This is a love relationship. He's made you a child of God. He loved you before you ever loved him. When you were still an enemy, Christ died for you. He's not going to turn his back on you now that you're one of his children. Just receive it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Holy Spirit, come and fill each heart here. You said you would shed abroad in our hearts the love of God. Let it be shed abroad this morning. And let it be shed abroad to other people. Out from our own joy, may joy bring hope to others as well. Lord, we enjoy you this morning. We thank you. We thank you. There's nothing to prove. Just everything to thank, receive with thankfulness. Thank you, Lord. Amen.